Good evening. I'm speaking to you live from my office here in our church in Des Moines. This is our regular Wednesday evening service time when we have a Bible study and prayer meeting. But of course, because of the COVID-19 disease pandemic, we're not able to have a regular service and we've taken this online with this live feed through Facebook. We always take time on Wednesday nights for a devotion and time of prayer, usually 15, 20, 25 minutes of prayer time. I don't intend to do that here tonight, but I would invite anyone who's watching, and I appreciate you watching, whether you're part of this local assembly or from other places, thank you. Uh, if you have Bible questions, you can send them in as comments. If you have comments or amens or whatever, you can also put those as comments tonight. But right now, as I said, I'd like to take just a few minutes uh, for a prayer and invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do come before the throne of grace. The scriptures tell us that we have a right of access to the very throne of God that was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, we read that we can come boldly before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And Lord, this is a time of need. We need grace to help. We need your mercy. Our globe is, is under attack by an unseen killer, this, this virus, COVID-19 disease that is stalking the land. And I pray that you would help every one of your people that you would uh, let this plague abate. Lord, in your mercy and in your compassion, let this disease uh, go into our past and not be a part of our present or future. I pray specifically for the members of the body of Christ, Lord, that you would remember each one of them. You've shown such great compassion on them already in making them members of the body of Christ and adopting them into your family and making them new creatures and giving them a vision of what you're doing with this body of churches. But I pray that that mercy would be extended and that you would protect and help and heal. And Lord, those who may uh, be afflicted by this or their loved ones are afflicted or even pass, I pray that you would provide comfort and strength to each one of them. Lord, in your precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, the churches in Babylon have been preaching a prosperity gospel for so many years that the members of most churches in the world aren't really prepared for dealing with this coronavirus pandemic. They've believed in living your best life now and enjoying the good things of life. They've believed that so much that many don't have the biblical knowledge to deal with this terrible crisis. Hebrews 2 and verse 1 says that we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Well, we've heard some things that we need to give earnest heed to. We've heard for years in this body that tribulation was coming. We're taught to expect the natural future to be worse and not better. We've heard of plagues and of judgments and of Armageddon and a rising beast that would speak as a dragon. We've been taught to prepare for adversity. Our pulpits have rung out with words of Jesus in Luke uh, 21, verse 34. He said, take heed unto yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. 
so that that day comes upon you unawares. And yet this pandemic, which is not an end time judgment, has caught so much of Christianity completely unawares and unprepared. Brother Dawson Mimi, the pastor of the Gospel Assembly Church in Bali, Uganda, was preaching the other day. I was watching his live stream, and he was talking about how Babylon does not have the answers. I've enjoyed watching so many preachers uh, live streaming over the last couple of weeks. Um, Brother Mamie's messages have been a real blessing to me, and he's right. Babylon doesn't have the answers, but the ministry of this body does. Our saints should not be fearful or panicking. To paraphrase Jeremiah 12, 5, we're now running with footmen, and they're not worrying, wearying us. Uh, we're not disturbed in this relative peace, and I believe we'll be able to stand against horsemen and in the swelling of the Jordan. I believe you should be thankful for your place in this body and for the ministry that God's given you. If you're not a part of this wonderful body of churches, well, contact us and we'll try to direct you to a nearby church that is part of this body. And if there's not one in your area, then we'll pray with you and work with you and maybe we can establish a church in this body where you are. And if you've wandered away, we're one time apart, I'm telling you, we would welcome you to come back, come home. I want to mention that in addition to our regularly quarterly issue of our free magazine called The Gospel of Peace, we printed a special edition this week that's exclusively dedicated to articles about this coronavirus pandemic. It's full of helpful information. We're putting it in the mail tomorrow to everyone on our mailing list, but each one of you can access it right now from this Facebook page. Um, and typically we go through Bible questions, but before we do, I want to give just a mini sermon, if you don't mind, that this virus situation is a defining moment for a generation. The true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is relevant to all people, young, old, rich, poor, every nationality, every socioeconomic status, every background, and the church doesn't change with the times. Rather, it remains constant. If it's true to the Bible, then the body of Christ has a timeless attraction for all who seek to know the Lord in a deep, committed relationship. King David said in Psalms 145, One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. This is why the Lord put such a strong emphasis on parents passing on their vision to their children. But there are different generations. Sociologists and others have developed schemes to divide the American society into generational groups. Uh, the ones that are still with us today um, are the silent generation, and then mine is the baby boomers. There's uh, Generation X, there's the millennials, and then the youngest is Generation Z. I'm not going to define each one of those, but you probably know which generation you're a part of. But there's attitudes and influencing factors for each one of those uh, groups that differentiates each generation from the others. And those differences, some of them are real and need to be considered in the operation of the church, but we have meaning and relevance and opportunities to serve for every generation. We all worship together, we study together, we pray together, we help one another, we stand together. Um, 
but we do bring our own backgrounds, our own history, our own culture, our own experiences when we come to church. And part of who we are was molded by the experiences of our generation. And even if you grew up in church, you were affected by the attitudes of your generation. The people you went to school with or worked with on the job or had social contacts with. We're in the world, but not of the world. But since we're in the world, we're subject to the ideologies and experiences that shape our lives. And generational mindsets are often shaped by the national or international crises that occur when you're a teenager or just coming of age. Our oldest generation was shaped by the Great Depression and World War II. Um, baby boomers were defined by the Vietnam War, the civil rights protests, and the Apollo 11 moon landing. The terrorist attacks of 9-11 helped shape the attitudes of the millennials. I'm saying that because this coronavirus pandemic is going to be a defining, or defining event for Generation Z. I haven't heard anybody talk about this, but I felt like I should. To some extent, this crisis is going to affect younger millennials. The mindset of our older children and teenagers is going to be permanently altered by this pandemic. They will probably view the economy, the government, their security, their technology, their attitudes about the trustworthiness of institutions, all that's going to be changed permanently by this crisis and our reaction to it. We'd be naive to think that generational issues don't affect members of the body of Christ. We have a book for sale on our website, dmgac.org. It's called Generational Issues in the Body of Christ. I'm not here trying to sell this, it's not an advertisement, but that book was written a couple of years ago, still relevant today. But I wanna quote what we said about Generation Z in that book. And I'll quote, the youngest generation in the body of Christ is still forming. Some of their childhood experiences have not happened yet. Some of their influences and attitudes may have not fully formed. This makes it somewhat hard to define this generation, as we don't know what philosophies, ideologies, technologies, and global experiences they may still encounter. But one thing is certain, they will be marked by what they encounter in their childhood." Close quote. This pandemic has allowed us to see a little more clearly than we did when this booklet was written. We can now predict better how Generation Z will grow up. We can see what influences they're going to have to deal with and what mindset they'll have. We've got to save this generation. The future of this body of churches depends on saving the next generation. If we lose one generation, it's over. And undoubtedly, this pandemic will have permanent effects on all of us, but especially on our children, children and our young adults. This pandemic has caused profound disruptions in everyone's life. There have been millions made sick and the death toll is going to continue to rise. We've shut down the economy and shuttered, closed many familiar institutions. Our children haven't been able to finish their school year. Many parents have either been working at home or are not working at all. And while these acts may be temporary, the impact they've had on young people 
may be long-lasting. Social distancing may be a part of this generation's psyche. They may be reluctant in the future to shake hands or to hug one another. They'll be consciously aware of six feet of separation from their private space. Even before this crisis, studies showed that members of Generation Z were less likely to be engaged in things like kissing, hugging, premarital sex. Um, physical separation during this pandemic may embed the thought in their minds that will cause them to be much more reluctant about any type of physical touch. And their lives are going to become even more embedded in technology as school is now shifting to online and there's more remote work. They were already the technology generation, while older generations have had to adapt to the great changes in modern technology. Generation Z has always had those technologies. They've never known life without instant communication, instant information, and devices that do more than most of us even know. They don't have to think about using technology, it's just there. For Generation Z, I'm afraid that church may become less of a shared experience as young people can select which of their favorite ministers they want to watch online. And while there's great sermons to watch, worship experiences don't really fit into an online format. We're teaching our children now how to worship at home, and that's good, but it would be sad if they felt that worship was just an individual and not a corporate experience. And many people are very afraid in this crisis. There's been irrational hoarding of things like toilet paper and, and grocery shelves that have been empty. Adults have lost jobs. Retirement, account, retirement accounts have plummeted as the stock market fell. We've taken unprecedented steps to try to avoid being infected by this unseen killer. And uncertainty is everywhere. And fear in adults is often magnified in children. They can perceive that fear, even if they don't hear you talk about it. It's even worse if they do. And just as our older generation lived through economic uncertainty and food shortages of the Great Depression, and they were thus marked by a lifelong need for security, well, even so, our teenagers may be marked by the fears of today. Isolation, fear, and uncertainty will affect them and could even produce long-term mental concerns. This generation was looking at graduating from high school or, more importantly, college into a society with a strong economy and low unemployment. But that all changed in a matter of days. Nearly half of the workers between ages 16 and 24 were in service jobs like in hotels or restaurants. And as young workers with the least experience, they were the first to lose their jobs. A survey taken a couple of days ago during this crisis found that 91% of college students are concerned about the economy and the job market. And more than half were worried about their own finances. Headlines these days proclaim that high schoolers are reconsidering their college of choice and are opting for one closer to home or taking a gap year or skipping college altogether. Those who are enrolled in colleges are considering whether they're going to return when the campuses reopen. Some will 
opt for the social distancing safety of online classes, but others wonder whether there'll be jobs when they graduate and whether those jobs will pay enough to be worth those expensive college degrees. Our young people have watched the government try to come to the rescue of the world. It's provided budget-busting financial help to businesses and individuals, and it seems to be the only institution that's providing the answers to the world at large. I think we can provide answers in the body of Christ, but at large, the government has grown big and powerful and more beastly, but young people will have no real memory of how it was before it grew so strong. A big, powerful government's going to seem normal to them. And the socialism of free checks to everybody, free testing and treatment of COVID-19, governmental monitoring of movements and public health and welfare orders are all being embedded into the mindset of a generation. This generation will expect the government to step in to solve every problem, to provide free health care, free college, free basic income, to trample constitutional rights anytime there's some potential threat to public health and safety and welfare. And they're very willing to surrender their freedom if they think it will help others or preserve the environment. Proverbs 30 verses 11 through 14 speaks of a cursed generation. I'm praying that the detrimental effects of this defining crisis doesn't curse Generation Z. And if it does, I pray that those bad effects don't reach into the members of that generation that are a part of the body of Christ. That's my sermon. I'd like to go to some Bible questions and try to answer them as best I can. As many as I can. Again, feel free to send in your questions as comments. But I have one that was submitted. I have three or four that were submitted. The first one is, when someone does something horrible and they say they've asked God for forgiveness and apologized to you, as what they did really did affect you, we have to forgive. And I'll pause there. Yes, we do have to forgive. The question goes on. But do we have to restore them back to the place in our life that they once held? Are we to forget and go on as if it never happened? Well, it's hard to give a blanket answer to that question because situations are different. It's going to depend in part on the circumstances of the hurt. For example, if somebody molests your children, I don't think you should ever let them be around your children or any children ever. The forgiveness can be real and it can occur without the relationship being brought back to where it was before that abuse occurred. And there's other situations in the Bible. King Saul repented to David many times for the horrible things he had done. He tried to, to kill David and then he would repent. And clearly David forgave the king. The king was his father-in-law, he forgave him, but he never went back to being Saul's armor bearer or being a captain in Saul's army. David's respect and honor for King Saul was real, but he could never have the relationship with him that he once had. The death of Jesus on the cross means that we can receive forgiveness for our sins. But even though salvation eliminates the penalty of sin, it doesn't eliminate all the consequences of sin. For another example, if you get drunk and drive your car into a tree 
and as a result, you're paralyzed from the waist down, a paraplegic, Jesus will forgive you for the sin of drunkenness if you repent, but he might not heal you of your paralysis. You might have to live with the consequences of your sin the rest of your natural life. Some sins against other people are so horrible that you can't really expect things to get back to normal. That's one of the consequences. Now, having said that, I do believe you should try to restore the relationship anytime you can safely do so. Don't use somebody's past transgression as a club that you're continually beating them over the head with. Forgive and forget when you can and go on with life. If you can, if you can restore that relationship, that's well and good. Um, if you can't, just make sure you're being righteous and not restoring the relationship. And it's not just an excuse. Forgiveness is a defining characteristic of a Christian. Because the Lord's forgiven us, we're to forgive others. Paul said in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And even as God, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Uh, remember, how did God forgive you? He forgave you when you didn't deserve it. Forgiveness is never earned. It's always a gift, freely given. And it's essential. If we don't forgive, Jesus said in Matthew 5 and in, and in Mark 11, if you don't forgive, then your heavenly Father won't forgive you. But if you will forgive others, then your heavenly Father will forgive you for your trespasses. <clears throat> I have another question here. It's fairly long um, to read, but I think I should read it. In 1 Samuel 12, 14, Samuel tells the people that if they will fear the Lord and serve him and hear his voice and keep his commandments, then both they and their king would continue to follow the Lord. In verse 25, he tells them if they will do wickedly, both they and the king would be consumed. Where is the line of responsibility between the leadership and the people? Clearly, the people could have a direct impact on the direction of the ruler by the way they lived, but also a ruler can have a major impact on the direction of the people that there are multiple references that show the wickedness of the people had an influence over their direction of the nation, as well as the decisions of the ruler and the direction he chose. What is the balance between the choices of the people for good and bad versus the choices of leadership, again, for good and bad, and the impact on the other? Okay. Generally, people get the kind of government that they deserve. Over the long term, an upright, moral, righteous people generally will get upright, righteous, and moral government. A sinful, wicked, immoral people generally will wind up with a wicked, sinful, immoral judgment. Or, not judgment, but government. How do you draw the line? Which one causes the other? Which is the cause and which is the effect? I'm not sure. I think they both work together. 
There's a scripture in Hosea 4 and verse 9 that says, as is the priest, so are the people. And bad leadership leads to bad uh, people. Bad people lead to bad leadership. Good leadership is a good example to good people. Um, and bad leadership is a bad example to people. There is a scripture in the second chapter of Judges that I'd like to read. Judges chapter 2 and verse 18 and 19. It said, And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. That makes it look like and probably true that leadership is maybe even more important than the followers. Good leadership is going to set a good direction for the people. But not always. King Josiah of Judah was one of the best kings they ever had. And King Josiah was an honorable and a good man who loved the Lord. But the people only gave feigned obedience. They didn't really love the Lord the way their king did. And within 22 and a half years after King Josiah's death, Babylon had invaded three times, carried the people off into captivity, destroyed the temple, and terrible judgments. I think both of them have to work together. Um, leaders are a great influence. And if you have good followers, then that's a, a tug on your heart to do the right thing and be the kind of person you ought to be as a leader. But it's going to take both working together. Paul did say, follow me as I follow Christ. He wanted to be a good example to those that followed. And so on the whole, I think it's very important that leaders be righteous. And maybe they'll lead their people in the right path. So I hope that addresses that question. The next one I have says, what does it mean in 1 Samuel 18.10 when it says that Saul prophesied when the evil spirit came upon him? There seems to be many times where King Saul prophesied in his life. But this seems to be the only time it mentions it in relationship to the evil spirit that came upon him. Can you shed some light on what this prophecy was? Thank you. Well, let's turn to 1 Samuel 18. And I'll just uh, read the verse. Um, but King Saul, at times, the Spirit of the Lord would come on him and he would prophesy. I don't think that meant he said, thus saith the Lord in the future, it's going to be a drought for seven years. I think he was worshiping in a way that was being led by the Spirit. Uh, even Peter told us that holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And there was times that, that I believe King Saul felt the genuine Spirit of God uh, before it departed from him. And here in 1 Samuel 18, in verse 10, it says, And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. 
and David avoided out of his presence twice. Was Saul really feeling the Spirit of God with that malice in his heart and that intent to, to strike David with a spear? I think not. I've always looked at that verse and saw that prophesying as, as deception on the part of Saul. When he was under the influence of an evil spirit and David's playing psalms to the Lord and with his harp and singing praises to God, uh, Saul didn't want to be looking um, down at David with such malice and hatred in his face that it would be obvious, but to put David at ease so he could strike him dead with his, with his spear. I think Saul feigned to be prophesying that he wasn't really uh, speaking praises to the Lord from his heart, not while he's under the influence of this evil spirit, but clearly I think he was uh, using deception in order to be able to strike a, an unexpected blow at David. He thought, this is how I'm going to get him. I'll, I'll act like I'm worshiping God and, and David won't pay any attention. He'll think things are going well. And while he's singing those psalms, I'll grab my javelin and I'll let him have it. But David was preserved of the Lord and escaped out of his presence. I don't think Saul was really speaking uh, true praises to the Lord at that in that instance. Got a question? We have one that's coming in, but it's not in yet. Okay, uh, that's fine. I got one more, so I'll do this. <clears throat> It'll take me a minute. <laughs> Is the response to the coronavirus shutting down the economy and placing people in lockdown, is it the right thing to do? <laughs> that too is a hard question to answer. It's really a political question and I'm not a politician, but I can only respond from, from what I believe is a biblical viewpoint. The COVID-19 is a horrible disease. It's affected over 2 million people as of tonight and the death toll is well into six figures now. World governments have made bold and harsh and costly decisions to deal with it. Many of the steps that have been taken are unprecedented in modern times, and none of us alive today have ever seen such strong-arm tactics from our governments. We've never before been ordered into statewide lockdowns. We've never before been ordered not to attend religious services. We've never seen orders to close businesses and restaurants and factories and borders on a massive scale. This coronavirus has prompted a greater assertion of governmental power than anything I've ever seen. Um, we're living now in a powerful, oppressive police state, and very few voices are being raised in opposition to it to even question the need to shred our constitutional rights. I believe we're seeing Revelation 13.11 begin to, to come to pass as this beast begins to speak like a dragon. The pandemic is bad, certainly. Uh, two million cases is sad. But last year, the winter of 2018 and 19, during that flu season, 35 and a half million people were infected with the flu. Over 100,000 deaths to coronavirus is sad but it's small in comparison to the 50 million deaths from the Spanish flu. The H1N1 virus of 2009 infected 61 million people 
and produced as many as 600,000 deaths worldwide. Yet our governments did not order such draconian and unconstitutional measures during the H1N1 pandemic. But we think we've got to limit the spread of this virus. So the American economic boom of the past three years was wiped out in a few days. Millions lost their jobs. Ten thousands of small businesses have been closed. Some will never reopen. Three quarters of the American population or more is in lockdown, subjected to house arrest. Um, all over the country, people are being fined, even jailed for violating these restrictions that the government has suddenly imposed upon them, um, forbidding any types of gatherings. Um, and neighbors are being told to, to snitch and report them to the police if they break these orders. Attendance at religious services, forbidden altogether. Yet you can go to the convenience store and buy booze. You can go to the grocery stores. You can pack out grocery stores. We've almost been turned into a police state because there were models that said that two million people were going to die from this disease. If we mitigated it, they said only 250,000 or so would die. Uh, in America, there's just been a little over 25,000. Um, maybe we have mitigated the death toll, and I hope we have. I hope it doesn't rise too much higher. And every sickness and every death is sad. But I wonder, have we overreacted? Have we meekly surrendered our constitutional rights to a beastly system that's unlikely to ever give them back fully? Has the cure been worth the cost? Has the effort been worth the catastrophic disruption of our social and economic life? We didn't have this during the H1N1 pandemic. It infected more people and took more lives than this coronavirus has, at least to this point. And are there prophetic issues? I think there are, and I've tried to address them several times. Won't go through them again. But I think that this is all going to be part of, of a rising beastly system that's going to reach to us. I have some other questions that have come in. I want to take time to try to address them. Kate? In 1 Samuel 6, 9, the Philistines put out a fleece to see if the plague that was afflicting their land was judgment from God or just happened by chance. Is this situation similar to today? And should we be seeing if this current pandemic is a judgment or just chance? Um, the Lord showed the Philistines in 1 Samuel 6 that he was in control. Um, they separated some mother cattle from their small calves, and a mother cow will not go away from it. Uh, but these did, and they carried the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, to the Hebrews, rather than returning to the stalls where their bawling calves were. And it showed that God was in control. I believe, and I've said before in some of these formats, that God's in control of everything in the universe. He's in control of every organism. He's in control of every uh, situation that, that our world never has spun outside of God's care and control. And so I believe this is judgment. Uh, I don't think we need to put a fleece out. 
we can look at the scriptures. You don't put fleeces out for things that you know. And if you look at the scriptures and see that God's hand is upon his people, uh, that his correction is upon his people, then I believe this is certainly judgment. The nation that forgets God shall be turned into hell. That's Psalms, um, the ninth chapter. And whenever things like this happen, it's a call for us to turn back to God. We've sown the wind, we're reaping the whirlwind. That's the way it is. Uh, if you wanna pray and ask God if this is really something he's done, be my guest. I want you to pray more. Please, please pray, please pray. Uh, but I believe my understanding of the scriptures is that we're now reaping what we have sown. Our society's forgotten God and judgments are coming, but they're a wake-up call to draw us back to the Lord. Anyone who'll heed that call will turn, come back closer to the Lord. And that's what he really wants out of all this. Kate? In Judges 11, 39, and 40, why did the daughters of Israel mourn the death of Jephthah's daughter every year? Is there significance to this? I have real trouble with the story of Jephthah. Um, his rash vow that he offered to, to the Lord, the first thing that came out of his house to greet him. I'm not sure what he was expecting. Maybe he was expecting a goat to come running out. Maybe he was expecting his German shepherd to come running out. I don't know what he was expecting. But when he made this vow uh, to the Lord that he was going to offer the first thing that came out of his house, he should have expected his only beloved daughter to come out to greet the conquering hero. Um, why didn't he expect that? Now, Jephthah had done great things. He's a great man. He's even mentioned, I believe, in the 11th chapter of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith. But this was one very poor decision. And lots of people make poor, poor decisions uh, in life. Um, I hope you don't make any that are too terrible. Um, there will be consequences if you do. But you can be forgiven. And uh, it's interesting. She went out, this daughter went out into the mountains to bewail her virginity. Um, and I don't know exactly what kind of a sacrifice that Jephthah made. I don't know if he actually slew his daughter, which would be something that, that I can't imagine God would condone, uh, especially after Moses had given such a law. Um, I can't imagine that, that God would, would be favorable to an actual human sacrifice. That's not what the Israelite people did. It may be that he forced his daughter to remain unmarried all the rest of her life, to live in a perpetual virginity, which may not sound too bad today, but in ancient Israel, that was a, a great sacrifice. That was a great curse, um, particularly since that was his only daughter. There would be no one then to, to receive his inheritance um, you know, if you read the story of Hannah, you see just how, how important it was to have children. Uh, the nation of Israel depended on having children and passing the land down in the same family. You don't want to mar your inheritance and lose it because there's no heirs. But when his only daughter became a perpetual virgin, then there was no one to inherit the land of Jephthah. 
no one to carry on the name. And so it could be that that the daughters of Israel were lamenting the sacrifice that, that Jephthah and, and his daughter had to make. Um, maybe they weren't, uh, you know, celebrating in, I don't mean celebrating, but remembering, memorializing her death so much as memorializing his sacrifice. I really don't know. I'm not claiming to understand exactly what happened. I don't want to feel bad at Jephthah. Um, he brought a great deliverance. And as I said, he's a champion of faith, but he should have been much more careful. And Lord, help each one of us to be careful of our words. Uh, we should treat our vows to the Lord as, as sacred and important, but we need to be very careful and not hasty about our words. Uh, it's Once you squeeze out words, it's like squeezing out toothpaste. You can't take it back. And be careful the words that come out of your mouth because they will have consequences and you can't always take them back. All right. This has been interesting. I hope that you've been blessed by it. Uh, again, I want to remind you that we have a, a special edition of our magazine dedicated specifically to this coronavirus crisis with several articles about that, and you can access it online directly from this website. And uh, we will be live streaming our Sunday service from the sanctuary this coming Sunday at 11 o'clock. You'll be able to access it from our website, dmgac.org or uh, you can access it later through this page on Facebook. We're praying that God's grace and mercy will be upon each one of you as we continue in this situation. We don't know how long it'll be before we can get back to some semblance of normal, but I sure am looking forward to being able to worship together with my brothers and sisters, not only in this local church, but to be able to go to some meetings and, and rejoice together with other members of the body of Christ. Until that time, may the grace of God be with you, cover you, and keep you. Amen.